listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And i got to tell you something, people. You know, I mentioned that uh, Joanne had her bridal shower last week, and one of the things we got, and I mentioned I was excited about, was this pineapple cutter. And I'm going to tell you something. I like pineapple. It's great for you, but it's always a pain in the ass to cut. So we got this thing, and I tried it last night, and I couldn't be happier. You just top, you cut the top of the pineapple off, you, you stick in this blade, and you just spin it around, and you pull the whole inside out, and the core and the shell, I think that's what it's called, stays, and it's already in rings. So it's amazing. Now if I could just find a uh, mango cutter, I'd be in heaven. Anyway, we have a great show today. Very excited to have this gentleman on. He's uh, he, he was the lead singer and the, I guess it's bass guitarist, bass guitarist, I'm not good at, I'll ask him the exact pronunciation, of the President of the United States of America. And he's also a children's uh, artist named Casper Baby Pants. And from his emails, I can tell he's just, uh, he seems like a really nice guy. And my guess is Chris Bailo. How you doing, Chris? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Steve. No problem. Now, I, I see I called you Beidou, and we just pronounced, said this. It's, it's, it's blue. <laughs> it's uh, okay. You know what? It's one of those names that just gets constantly butchered. So I became, uh, you know, sort of insensitive to the massive, uh, you know, variety of ways you can pronounce it a long time ago. So you're, it's fine. Okay. I don't want to. And now, how do you pronounce Basitaris? Did I. Basitaris? How do you pronounce that? That's Basitaris, yeah. Now, did you make that up? Well, I was kind of, yeah, the exact version that I play, yes. Um, I used to be uh, roommates with and collaborate with this guy, Mark Sandman, who was the lead singer and two-string bass player for a band called Morphine in Boston. And he had, so he used to play it with a slide, and he had a version sitting around that you could actually play with your fingers. And when I picked that up, I just felt like, oh, my gosh, this is my instrument. And so I sort of spun off from his influence and made the bass guitar my own and then created a three-string version, too. So the Presidents had a two-string and a three-string. And then when I do Casper, I play a three-string. So, uh, yeah. But at this point, I guess after, you know, what has it been? 30 years or 25 years of playing that way, I sort of feel like I own it. So You, you should. I, you should just sit there and you should get a trademark and sell shirts because people buy everything on shirts. That's true. Now, now you're from the Seattle area, and at what point did you start playing music? Uh, well, you know, as a kid, were you musical, or, or when did this whole love of music start? Yeah, it really started when I was uh, about two and a half. And my older brother, who is quite a bit older, he's about 17 years older than me, he gave my parents Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band when it came out. In uh, Well, it came out June 1st, 1967. He gave it to them for Christmas that year. And so I was two and a half, and my parents didn't really uh, connect with the record, but I did in a big way. And I used to play that record over and over and over again and bang on the piano and try to play along when I was tiny. So, yeah, really it started when I was two and a half. When I was about four, I started taking piano lessons, and I was sort of being groomed for a while there to be a professional piano player. Uh, I took lessons for about ten years and got pretty into it. But once I picked up an electric guitar and plugged it into an amp and hit a open E chord, it was all over. <laughs> now, I, I moved on. Okay, now, now, you mentioned that uh, you lived in Boston. How did you get from Seattle to Boston? 
Well, I went to school uh, at an art college called State University of New York at Purchase, SUNY Purchase for short, in upstate New York. And the last semester I was there, uh, there was a visiting artist, teacher, guy from Boston named Chris Janney. And uh, at the end of the semester, at the end of my college career, basically, he said, well, if any of you people want to come up to Boston and work for me, you've got a job. And so me and the drummer in my band uh, just said, let's go. And we went up to Boston and worked for this artist for a few years. And then I became a house painter and, you know, started bands and just sort of, you know, fell into the Boston world. And that's where I met Mark. So, yeah. Now, were you uh, busking up there when you were in Boston at all? Yeah, yeah, quite a bit in the subway. And uh, did Harvard Square quite a few times, uh, you know, just kind of, just, you know, sort of to make enough money to buy a 12-pack of beer that night and some Indian food, and we considered that a success. Yeah. <laughs> now, were you developing songwriting or anything at the time, or were you just up there as, I mean, did you have an idea you wanted to be a musician, or did you want to go into the art field seeing that you were up there with one of your teachers? Uh, no, art was a conundrum to me. I went to art school basically to avoid music school. I didn't want to go to music school and learn how everything worked and learn all the, you know, secrets of how music gets put together because I kind of wanted, I had this intuitive sensation that I wanted to figure it out on my own. And so I went to art school just to avoid music school. And while I was there, I kind of, uh, you know, uh, bounced around from one uh, method of making art to another, but never really figured out what I want to do. Actually, now I'm back to making art and I'm having a bunch of shows and uh, kind of doing that again. So I'm finally using my degree, but uh, at yeah. the time, definitely the focus was being, <laughs> at the time, the focus was definitely being a musician. Uh, I had a band and I was writing songs and, you know, I think I started dreaming about being a successful musician a lot, you know, way back when I was a little kid. So, uh, you know, just staring at Beatles cover album covers and daydreaming about <laughs> I have this specific daydream that the Beatles would be sort of you know running past my house on one of their adventures and George was sick and they needed another guitar player and <laughs> they'd uh, you know tap me for the job <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> yeah yeah so no, so no. That, and that started when I was you know three years old so it's funny because you know I you know people say you don't really have memories when you're younger and I think that's crap sometimes because I know when I was three or three and a half, I was in the hospital. I got an eye operation, and I still remember the kid, the kid in the room with me had these little plastic dinosaurs, and you just don't make that stuff up. You know what I mean? And people were like, "Oh, you yeah. can't, you can't remember from when you're three. I'm like, "Well, how would I remember this kid with brown curly hair and dinosaurs?" Interesting. Yeah, I think, I think even maybe more than uh, specific. Uh, circumstances or uh, you know visuals I think definitely kids remember their sort of intuitive experience from being little like kind of the energy of it or the you know are you do you feel safe do you feel scared uh, you remember stuff like yeah going to the hospital that's a typical I think uh, early memory trigger is a, you know something that's a little spooky or scary um, so that makes sense that you would remember something from there because that's a traumatic moment so i i believe you 
and now and you love you love the Beatles, so that makes sense for you. Now, now yeah. the group Egg. What was that all about? And how'd you come up with just the name Egg? And I think it's a good name, <laughs> but it's just very basic, and you don't think of something because we all eat eggs, but you just don't think about Egg. Yeah, I know that's funny. Wow, it's interesting answering questions about Egg. What a crazy thing. Um, you can actually see uh, videos of Egg playing at the Middle East on YouTube. Somebody archived all of those videotapes from the old days so people want to go they can check it out um egg came about because so when i was in art school it was me and the drummer and then this guy mike who was not a musician but he was kind of like a i don't know it is interesting he sort of hung around the band i was in see did he go to school with us or did we meet him in boston i can't remember i think we met mike in boston and mike came up with the name egg um mike was kind of like this you know uh, gosh, what would, what would he be analogous to? Kind of like a George Martin to our Beatles, you know, like uh, not exactly a producer of the music, but sort of a guy that hung around the edges of what we were doing and kind of prodded us to be more interesting and, and take risks and, you know, sort of gave feedback on songs and came up with the name of the band. And then we started a fanzine, at the, you know, at the time, not fanzine, but zines, you know, like Xeroxed little punk rock magazines were all the rage back in the you know late 80s early 90s and uh we started one of those called egg and mike was kind of in charge of that so you know he came up with that whole concept and we kind of followed his lead which is now that i talk about it it's kind of weird for a band to have like a you know a shadow member right (laughs) but we we did (laughs) so you're 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 in egg you're in boston and now you eventually go to la what spurred that move uh, actually, I went from Boston back to Seattle. I woke up one morning in Boston and realized, wait a minute, I'm from Seattle, and Seattle is beautiful, and Boston is harsh uh, in some ways, weather being number one and number two, just like, I don't know, I didn't feel like I could put down roots there. So I went back to Seattle. Not long after I got back to Seattle, I met Beck, uh, who was obviously from L.A., he was up in Seattle playing some shows, and a friend introduced me, and we hit it off, and through a series of, you know, interactions, and I actually jumped up on stage and played with him during one of his shows, uh, he invited me to be in his band and go on tour with him right after he got signed. So I moved to L.A. to live with him and rehearse and kind of get ready for that, uh, you know, experience. And the presidents had already started at that point, so I was taking a break from the presidents. I know we haven't gotten there yet, but anyway, that's how I ended up in L.A., was uh, playing with Beck. Now, with Beck, it, it probably it may gave you uh, probably a good learning experience, per se. Yeah. I mean, just because you're going out on the road. At that point, as you said, you were already with the presidents. When did you start the presidents, and how did that intersect with Beck? And, I mean, how did you end up, you know, leaving the band for just that little bit? And were you guys performing live at that time? Yeah, we were. We started in December 93 with Jason. So Dave and I played a few shows as a duo before Jason joined in the fall of 93. And then Jason joined, and that sort of upped the... uh, the game a little bit because he was connected to the scene and you know he was booking a club at the time so he could book us into places which was great um and so uh the Beck thing happened early in 94 so the band the presidents with jason was just kind of getting our sea legs we'd recorded a demo uh like a 13 song cassette uh and we were selling that at the bar where jason worked and 
But it wasn't like, you know, a going concern. It wasn't like uh, taking off. So it was an easy thing to kind of put on pause since I had this opportunity come along. I didn't know if the presidents were going to be a big deal or if it was just another in a long string of weird bands that I would be in. So I jumped at the chance to go on tour with Beck because I thought it'd be real world, real world experience and I'd be getting paid to make music, which was like, you know, revolutionary, getting a salary to strum a guitar. So I jumped at that. And, you know, you're right, it was a learning experience, and but less than... Uh, it was less about the practicalities of being on the road and more about the uh, sort of abstract cyclone of uh, <laughs> inner negotiations that fame necessitates. You know, you've got to kind of figure out how you're going to handle the um, kind of onslaught of extra shit that comes at you when you become successful. That's, ex you know, outside just playing songs, writing songs, playing them live making records you got all this other stuff to figure out how do you how are you going to relate to the pressure of uh being a a public persona and that's the learning experience that i got with beck because beck was going through that while i was sitting right next to him and since i was the only band member not from la i lived with him and we were kind of a duo and we went around playing like if he played a radio show or a promotional thing it would be him and i doing it together and we did a lot of talking about his transformation and you know what that was going to be like and I, I really admired the way he handled it he kind of sobered up he stopped drinking he stopped smoking he was in the back of a van with Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States you know reading up on history and kind of engaging he decided to kind of get out of his own head and get into the world and you know really really take advantage of what he was being offered so that was cool. So it was kind of like I got to sit next. I kind of got to go to fame school. Right. Sit next, I got to sit next to a cyclone of fame. And then when I quit after two tours and went back to the president's because we were selling all these demo tapes over the bar at the Comet where Jason worked, um, I kind of had, you know, I learned some stuff and got to eventually experience my own fame cyclone. And uh, so, yeah, it was cool. It was like going to... To success school. Now, now, when you back went back to Seattle, what was the what was the music scene like? What was the pulse up there? Was it still exploding? Oh, it was, I mean, was it was it still you know just going crazy? No, I don't. Not as much going crazy. I mean, Kurt Cobain had had uh, died. Uh, I remember that day. I was in the hospital with Beck. Actually, we both had pneumonia. Um, so we were in the hospital in St. Louis or something when we found that out. But uh, so it was, a, you know, it was not the exact same scene. Of course, it wasn't on the upswing. It was more like plateaued. But the beautiful thing about that scene was there were so many people going out to see music every single night because everybody was excited about the next big thing. It was a very fertile scene. So we were playing, you know, on a Tuesday night uh, at the Crocodile or a Thursday at Mo and the place was jammed, you know, not necessarily for us, just jammed for interest. You know, everybody was interested. So it was a really kind of great place to plant our seed and try to grow a weird flower, which is what we did, <laughs> if I may be metaphorical. Uh, and, you know, we just had a, we had an audience every night. And since we didn't really care, uh, well, we appeared not to care while simultaneously caring very deeply about our music. Uh, it was a, I think it was a nice relief for people to watch a band that just kind of, 
you know, had fun and wanted everyone to party. So uh, it was, yeah, it was great. It was a great time. It was a very healthy time for the scene. Now, as you you said earlier, you had a 13 uh, song demo that you would sell at shows. When did record companies start getting an interest in you guys? Well, that would have been Bumbershoot Weekend. Bumbershoot's a big festival over uh, <clears throat> Labor Day weekend here in Seattle, and it was that weekend, uh, a lot of the scene, and we played at a ASCAP showcase on, I think, the Sunday night of that weekend, and I didn't know it at the time, but the place was full of major label representatives, A&R men, people, A&R women, men. And uh, the, the next day, we got seven offers from major labels. So it was literally one show <laughs> that uh, changed everything. So you, get... it was, you know, it was, it was a show in a club we played a lot, and the crowd knew us, and like, I think the labels kind of looked around and said, whoa, you know, this connection between the band and the audience could be blown up to a national scale. So, yeah. So, so the, label, the label signs you. You already have songs written, but when you go in the studio, do they want different material, or how did they come apart? You know, come about you doing that first album. Well, we had actually already made the first album on our own with an um, uh, indie label called Pop Llama, and um, so it was done. But it wasn't mixed very well, and uh, so it needed some help. And uh, so when we signed with a major label, we licensed the record to them for seven years. We did not take big advances or anything like that. We just said, all right, we're going to forego you guys laying out a bunch of money and we're just going to take back our intellectual property in seven years. And uh, so they had nothing to say about it. We made the record. We already made the record. We just needed to remix it and, you know, sparkle it up for the airwaves. And uh, that was it. So it really was kind of like they were working for us more than we were working for them. Well, okay, the songs on it are shorter, and they're great. And, and I, I wanted to ask you about Peaches. How everyone, everyone knew that song. And what were you thinking when you wrote that song? And, and are you amazed still that it was such a huge, huge hit? Yeah. Well, number one, what was I thinking? I, was, uh, I had a crush on a girl, and I took psychedelic drugs, and I went to her house to tell her that I had a crush on her. And she was not home, and I had to wait in her cartoonishly happy little yard under a peach tree. I uh, waited for about an hour, and I literally squoze rotten peaches in my fist as the uh, psychedelics kicked in and uh, <laughs> wrote the song. And you have to keep in mind the setting was so surreal. She lived in a very dark gray kind of low industrial part of Cambridge in Boston. And uh, her house looked like the house that the grandmother and Tweety Bird live in in the Warner Brother cartoons. It was yellow with white trim and a picket fence and a peach tree. And I'm, you know, I'm tripping the life fantastic. And uh, so that's basically it. <laughs> and so in that context, yes, I'm surprised it became a huge hit because I'm surprised that the whole thing worked. I mean... I re distinctly remember Dave Dieterer, the, guitar, uh, the Git bass player, uh, telling me at one point, before Jason even joined, I think Jason had just joined the band or something, and 
uh, we played a few shows with him, and Dave said something to me like, you know, if a major label came along and wanted to give us a bunch of money to play these songs and travel all over the world, I'd do it. And I remember thinking inside myself, you are insane. Nobody's going to give us money to play these silly <laughs> songs about doom buggies and peaches and kitties and lumps. And uh, But outwardly I said, yeah, that would be great, you know, kind of playing along. Anyway, that moment always sticks with me because I felt so improbable, and yet it happened. It so. happened, and it, it happened huge. How long, I mean, how long to you, you started feeling the momentum? And as you said earlier, you had been in, you know, fame school from Beck, so that probably helped you a lot because you guys went on a real skyrocketed quick. When did you know that you guys were just really taking off? I mean, was there a certain moment that you said, holy crap? This is more than us playing in Seattle. This is like everybody is listening to us. Yeah, well, I mean, that sensation happened earlier than even, you know, the fan relationship. It was more like, you know, we're flying to L.A. and we've got a manager and we, we have to interview lawyers and we have to talk to seven major label record companies and understand how the music business works. And we immediately split into a three-headed hydra. Dave read Donald Passman's book. I think it was called, what was that book called? Not The House on the Hill, but he wrote a book about the music business and the, you know, the nuts and bolts kind of stuff. Dave read that book and became adept at reading contracts. Jason would wine and dine the A&R men and the label people until the wee hours of the night because he was late night PR. I stayed home and wrote more songs and worked on the creative angle of everything. So... I guess, you know, it kind of felt like, uh, it felt real from the very beginning when the major labels had interest in us, because we had to get very serious really fast <clears throat> and kind of, you know, recognize that we were going to be in charge of a multinational corporation and not just a band. But then fan-wise, um, you know, I don't have a real first distinct, like, memory of uh, like maybe playing a huge show. We, we played so many huge shows so fast that they all kind of blurred together. And frankly, I kind of like the smaller shows better. I like shows where you can see everybody's face. But, um, you know, I remember playing to countless people on a shutdown racetrack in Europe uh, and just I could not see the end. I couldn't see where the people stopped. And I definitely remember thinking, this is huge and i'm barely able to ride this monster <laughs> now as as your uh you know as the first album comes out do you remember the first time you heard one of your songs on the radio and what song was it uh you know i have a distinct memory but it's not of the radio it's of mtv which is more like what i grew up listening to in a way uh i remember being on my honeymoon with my first wife in hawaii in 1995 fall of 95 and watching MTV on the little uh, TV in our cabana and um, there was some sort of top 10 video countdown like here are the top 10 hottest videos and we were right in between like Destiny's Child and Janet Jackson <laughs> and I was like what the hell is my silly little rock band doing sandwiched in between those two superstars yeah, it was, it was bizarre. So that's a distinct memory where, like, oh, we're swimming in the actual waters here. Now, I also was... had a, I also another like you know early when we were with the uh, 
you know, in the in the major label negotiation portion, uh, we had a very serious business meeting with Madonna about signing up on Maverick, her label at the time, and uh, she really got us. She really understood our thing and understood that we cared a lot about what we were doing and that we were talented at you know making this music and even though it looked easy and it seemed like a toss off that it was actually hard work and so her kind of getting it and validating it and you know we had a great time sort of chilling with her and she gave me some really good advice and stuff like that so that was a moment too where I was like oh okay I'm having a business meeting with Madonna this is this is this is real. <laughs> now, now, what was your, let's say, relationship with MTV? You know, because as you said, we watched MTV videos all the time when we were younger, and now they're not on anymore. But what was the whole process for you shooting the videos? Was it was it a fun time? Because I've talked to some people who just say, you know, it was a pain in the ass. Some people loved it. What was it like for you guys when you first started making those videos? It was hard because, you know, it's, it reminds me of a Mitch Hedberg joke. He's like... You know, he's talking about how he can do, he does stand up, and these people come from TV networks and watch his stand up, and then they want him to write a sitcom. And he's like, Well, just because I can do stand up doesn't mean I can do sitcom. It's like, Oh, you're a chef. Do you farm? Right. <laughs> so it's analogous to that, meaning like, Oh, you're in a band. Can you make little movies? You know, like making videos is not something that is <laughs> intuitive. Uh, when you compare it to what it's like to just like go to a rehearsal space and learn some songs and book a show and play and have a connection with the audience. Now, that's like what we loved. Making Even making records was kind of difficult for us, kind of bottling our energy. But bottling it and putting something visual to it was really confusing for us. Luckily, we had Roman Coppola, Francis Ford Coppola's son, to uh, come up with some awesome ideas. He came up with the ninja attack in Peaches and he made the lump video and, you know, wanted to represent Seattle, uh, in that video. And Roman was great. He was like 50, 50, half the videos we made with him were, were brilliant and half were so bad that we never released them. Okay. So, <laughs> so the band, it's when you start getting heat, I mean, you're getting huge. How does the touring change? Do you, do you start getting, you know, you tour the world I mean, is there, are you more liked in some places? Like, I've, I've talked to guys in metal bands who say in Japan, everybody loves them. And they even just also in South America because the fans just show up and you're like, what? how'd they hear we were coming? You know, because it was before the internet. What, what was your experience when you started getting in Europe and other places? Who liked you the most and who did you think, you know, where did you draw the biggest crowds? Um... Well, one, number one, we never toured before we got signed, so we had nothing to compare it to. The only touring any of us did before we got signed was me touring with Beck, and that was a phenomenon, you know, like crazy nuts. Uh, so I've never, <laughs> I've never saw, you know, uh, battled it out in the trenches, you know, club to club trying to build something with a band. I've only toured when the band is already hot. So I don't really have anything to compare it to, but uh, as far as, uh, you know, America goes, I mean, Seattle was huge for us, of course. Um, the Southeast loved us, which was interesting, you know, like Birmingham, Alabama, and North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia, those kind of places, uh, we were just super loved. 
in Europe, definitely Ireland was a big deal. And I remember when I was a busker in Boston, everybody who, not everybody, but a lot of people said, you should go to Ireland. I was like, really? And so eventually we got there and that was gigantic. But I think the, the real, you know, European home away from home for us is the Paradiso in Amsterdam. That's, that's our, I mean, I get kind of goosebumps just thinking about it. We've had, we had so many religious experiences in that club, uh, over the years from the beginning all the way through and, uh, just love, great people run that place and we love Amsterdam and we love that club. So that was kind of our, our hottest spot. Our least hot spot was the logo in Hamburg. Was it Hamburg? I think it was Hamburg. Hey, Katie, was that Hamburg? Oh, she's gone. My wife did, uh, my wife's in the background. She did, uh, merch for us for years. So I was going to ask her, but anyway, I think it's Hamburg, the logo. We, uh, kept playing this tiny, tiny, absolutely hot, sweaty, disgusting club all the way when we were super hot, all the way to when we were not. And we never could get a better booking. For some reason, the major label, for some reason, Sony had this idea that we should be huge in Germany. And they just kept sending us back to Germany. And the Germans didn't want us. They, the Germans wanted rock. Right. They didn't want rock and roll. They wanted rock. They wanted but scorpions. Some, yeah, but exactly. But some staffer at Columbia's job was to break us in Germany. And I remember sitting her down at a lunch one time like, you've sent us to Germany five times in the last year. <laughs> Meanwhile, we're losing momentum in the U.S. What the hell is wrong with you? And she kind of confided after a glass of wine. She was like, "I, if I don't break you in Germany, I'll lose my job. Oh, wow. So that was kind of an eye-opener. It's like, all right, nobody cares about us here, <laughs> really. They care about the dollars we're generating, but nobody cares about our health or well-being you know all that international travel was making us sick we were getting bronchitis we were exhausted anyway well, so you, you know your your first album went triple platinum now there's that puts a lot of pressure on you for the, the second album did you feel that pressure and you know where do you start writing when your first album was such a huge 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 success well we just cracked open the rock and roll cliche brochure and went ahead and made a weak second record <laughs> we were just following the you know it's what it said to do next it's like get exhausted don't take a break make a weak second record okay all right let's do it uh yeah we just did the cliche thing we were under pressure from the record company to make another record and uh we should have taken a year off and just had our lives back because all the good vibes on that debut we're born out of having a good life and just being with our friends and our family and, you know, playing Frisbee in the park and, you know, playing a house party on a Friday night or something. So we should have reset, but we didn't. And so, yeah, we sound tired and we didn't come up with a bunch of fresh songs. In fact, a lot of those songs were songs from when we made the first record that didn't make it on the first record. So it was a little bit of cleaning house and, uh, I always call the second record a really great EP that's trying to be a record. <laughs> <laughs> then again, I put it on like a year ago, and I loved it. Well, there I you go. It was awesome. Yeah, so uh, who knows? You know, the, I think the people that love that record love it, you know, in the context of topping, equaling or topping the first, that might have been an impossible task to begin with. So, you know, 
Now, now, how did it come about that you played for Clinton? Was it because of your band's name? Exactly, yeah. I don't know how we actually got the gig, but uh, or who set it up. But, uh, yeah, we opened up for him in Seattle at the Pike Place Market. He came into, I think it was uh, midterm elections, and so he came in to stump for the Democrats, and, yeah, we opened up for him. And we met him and hung out with him, and it was a kind of an interesting uh, experience. I definitely like to say that when you, shake, when you shook Bill Clinton's hand, it was a full-body sexual experience. <laughs> <laughs> He, he, you know, he's one of those politicians that's got that essential quality, which is when you are interacting with him, he makes you feel like you're the only person in the room. So that's that was the sensation. So. Now, now you, you guys broke up. It was that just because you wanted to have free time, or you wanted to work on your own music? How did what what did the breakup? What was the breakup about? Well. You know, I never really wanted to be in a big, loud rock and roll band. It just wasn't, was, it was not what was interesting to me about that band. I liked that band because in the early days, you know, Jason had no cymbals in the drum kit. I was playing a little weird two-string guitar. Dave was playing. I mean, our guitars together were worth about $125. Uh, terrible amplifiers. Everything sounded like rubber bands. And yet, we tried to rock. You know, we would do... Uh, an Aerosmith cover or an ACDC cover or uh, Billy Squire or something. And it was funny because it was these three skinny dorks trying to rock. And that was interesting to me. Then we get signed, we get real gear, we go on big shows and then we're just a rock band. I mean, of course, yeah, we're still playing these funny, interesting songs. They just had more muscle behind them. And to me, that tipped the scales and I immediately wanted out. I was like, I tried to convince the guys, like, let's just pull a Sex Pistols and break up right away and just freeze ourselves in this perfect state. And, of course, it didn't happen, and I kind of softened on my, you know, stance that that was the best thing to do, and we just kept going and going and going. But the entire time in the back of my mind, I had this uh, little voice saying, there's something else you're supposed to be doing. It's not this. You know, this is great. And congratulations, but you got to keep digging. you got to keep trying to figure out what it is you're supposed to be doing. And so I did. For 15, 20 years on the side, outside the president's, I started other bands. I tried recording all sorts of different kinds of songs, different kinds of ways, collaborations. Nothing really clicked. And then, you know, about 10 years ago, I started dating my second wife. And her art, she's an amazing artist. Her name's Kate Endel. E-N-D-L-E, and her art had this, like, shiny, happy, well-constructed, silly, uh, <laughs> she's making faces at me now. <laughs> uh, it had this, it had all, all the adjectives that I used to describe her art were the adjectives that I wanted to use to describe this elusive music that I was supposed to be making. So I started making art directly inspired by her I mean I'm sorry I started making music directly inspired by her art and after a few days of tinkering around with that a giant light bulb went off over my head and I realized oh I should be making children's music and it was this incredible feeling of like relief like that's it I found it it's amazing this 
also the relief was like I will be if I do children's music I will be immune to the culture of cool the culture of what's hot you know like you don't have to be on the radio or you know uh, the topic of the week to sell records to families it's a, it's a way more kind of you know in the trenches kind of uh, making music that's useful for families and helps them relieve stress and connect and I have the challenges. I got to write songs that uh, parents and the child are both going to love. And anyway, the sensation was completely like coming home. And so for about six years, I did the Casper Baby Pants Kids thing and the presidents at the same time. And because uh, we had reunited. So we broke up in 98 for five years. We reunited. And then later on, I found the Casper thing. So, I mean, I know this is kind of chronologically jumping around, but basically we broke up because I just, it's kind of like, you know, you can't find the job you're supposed to have if you don't quit the job you don't like. So I realized after a while, I've got to quit this rock band. I've got to make space and I've got to try to figure out what this other thing is. And so I did. And I didn't figure it out and we got back together and then I did figure it out and then we broke up again. (laughs) (laughs) Now, 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 how'd you come up with the name Casper Baby Pants? It's an old nickname from when I was in that band. I was in a band with Mark Sandman, the guy that showed me the two-string, called Supergroup, and it was my stage name, and I wore a pair of baby's pants on my head. Uh, <laughs> you can find pictures of that online, too. I lost the baby pants, unfortunately, and I've got a song on that will be coming out on a future Casper album called The Ballad of the Baby Pants about whatever happened to them. I don't know, but... Um, yeah, so it was it was my old stage name, and when I went to make kids' music, I thought, well, what am I going to call it? My name, make up a band name, and then I remembered, oh, wait a minute, I'm already Casper Baby Pants. So there you go. 20-year-old nickname resurfaces. Now, how do you go about writing kids' music? Because, you know, you you have to write for kids. Um, kids can be so fickle. How do you figure out, when you sit down to write, do you sit there and say, um writing for kids it's like the old when the Flintstones came out you know the Flintstones was written for adults but the kids loved the you know Fred's voice and kazoo and all that but as you know you mentioned earlier the parents have to like it too but when you sit down to write a song for specifically for kids how do you do that and also make sure that the parents find it interesting and then even it can't be offensive at all no, no. Well, so there's a few things going on there. Well, number one, the Flintstones is the honeymooners, so you got that going on. Uh, so that's why the parents liked it, because, you know, it's Ralph Cramden and it's Fred Flintstone, basically. Um, secondly, I write songs for zero to six-year-olds. So I write songs for kids before they become cynical, before they understand what's cool and what's not cool, before they become jerks, <laughs> uh, before they become, you know, sort of defined by how they're different from others. I like to get at them. My ideal people are like one and a half, two, two and a half, three, those, that range, they're just so delightful and they're so, uh, beautiful and silly and weird and surreal. And so I avoid that problem by just not making music for older kids. Um, and as far as connecting with the parents, I don't do it by being sort of like Toy Story 2 style where like I put in cultural jokes for the parents. I do it more by drawing influence from super old music from like the 1800s 
folk music, blues, uh, prison work songs, slave chants, um, that kind of stuff, all the way up to, you know, I'll, that's one spot where I get inspiration. Uh, so that the music sounds human, like it, it sounds, and it's hard to explain, but I think a lot of that music was written out of necessity to uh, elevate a otherwise dark and uh, sometimes dangerous and deadly uh, existence. Like, you know, if you're a slave or if you're a prisoner on a chain gang in 1895, that song that you're singing while you're breaking rocks might be the difference between life and death, you know, keeping you connected to the, the feeling of being human. So I'll listen to that and I'll kind of take the rhythm of it or the cadence or the melody or something about it and kind of start, you know, spinning off into my own thing and add my own bizarre lyrics about bugs or food or animals or whatever. And, uh, so that's one way I do it. The other way is I just kind of, I've written all these songs over my life, just like thousands of songs and fragments that never found a band or a home. So I've been listening back over all those and realizing, oh, that's trying to be a Casper song, and that's trying to be a Casper song. And I found so many old songs that were unconsciously stabbing at that, you know, kids' music thing, but I had no concept of it, so I missed it, you know? So there's that, and uh, you know, I I make this. I really am writing songs that make me happy. I'll put in a Casper album in the car when I'm driving around, and I love it because <laughs> it's, you know, musically also. I kind of try to make it a sophisticated enough and layered enough where uh, an adult can listen to it and be satisfied aesthetically just simply by the music. Like if, sometimes if the lyrics are real repetitive and childlike, I'll let the music kind of be more complex. But if the lyrics get kind of story-like and complex and kind of deep, you know, uh, thicker rhymes, I'll keep the music simple. So it's become this, like, uh, challenge, this uh, craft and artistic challenge to kind of make this music work for grown-ups and kids. And it's so endlessly challenging that my 16th record is coming out in August. So and I was thinking, I'm on your website, I'm on the uh, babypassmusic.com. And uh, yeah. there's so many, I mean, your production is just insane. I mean, how many <laughs> albums you put out? Because, you know, you talk to, you know, I talked I talked to Steve Hackett a few weeks ago from Genesis, but he was on a solo career, and he put, puts out album after album. But you have, I mean, there's tons of them. I mean, does it, how long does it take you to put one of these albums together? Well, see, I'm, I don't actually sit down and make an album. I'm just constantly recording and working on songs, and I have this ginormous batch that I'm constantly kind of shepherding toward completion. So I'll, I'll listen to them all, and I'll say, okay, that song needs to be in a different key, and that song needs to be a lullaby, not a rocker, and that song needs to be rewritten from a different perspective, and or that song just needs the bass to come up a little bit, and it's done, or, you know, there's all these different states that they're in and then when it comes time to make a record i just skim the cream of the crop off of that giant batch of songs i just take all the ones that are so awesome and feel so good and are so solid and put them on a record and then that batch just gets replenished and right now the batch is up to 72 i think i've got 72 unreleased songs that i'm massaging into shape for future records so i'm, I'm way ahead of myself at this point which is why I'm taking a little bit of a step back and doing visual art for a while, because uh, I'm just 
I'm way ahead of the game because I'm going to put out a record every August for the next three years, and I've already got them recorded. So now, now, how do you punk come about about the video? I, I watched just a little bit of the crab song, the crab video. I found oh, yeah. on YouTube. Do you know? Do you have input in the video, or do you do it because you're a visual artist now? How do you come about the video? Because once again, it has to be for kids. And it's not like your old videos where it's you guys jamming. You, know, you have to have a yeah, kid yeah. sit there and go, I like this. Do you have input in the videos, or, and do you make them yourself? Uh, both. Um, I'm The ones that are hand-drawn with, like, just black lines and very crudely animated, those are all I do, just with sheets of paper and a pen and a camera, and just put them together in iMovie, believe it or not, an old version of iMovie. Thanks, Apple, for canceling the only thing about iMovie that was awesome. Uh, let's see. But some of them I hire people like that's Charlotte. She's in the UK and she works. Uh, she's a uh, animator on her own. I found her online. I just emailed her and said, "Hey, you want to make me a video?" And we worked it out. I paid her. And uh, in that case, with pretty crabby, she sent me. You know, the, she sent me like uh, pictures of what the crab was going to look like and a rough cut of it that I gave a little feedback on. But then some of the animated ones, like I work with a, a crew in New Zealand called Muck Putty, and sometimes they'll just do the whole thing without me seeing a lick of it. Uh, and then sometimes I'm more involved and I'll look at a storyboard uh, and we'll kind of hash it out. But one distinctive thing about my videos is I'm not in any of them. One of my ideas is that I want the videos to support the world of the song, and that doesn't mean showing my face and me playing music, you know. I feel like that would take people out of the magic of the song. So one of the things I'm doing with this Casper thing is really trying to put the songs forward and make songs that are uh, have a life of their own outside of supporting my celebrity. Uh, I'm not trying to be famous with this music at all. I'm just really trying to make stuff that helps families reduce stress. And, no. and you know, hoping that that helps the world be a better place. Now, how do, do, you, do you do live shows? Oh, yeah. I've done over, I've done almost 1,200 live shows for Casper. Now, what is that like? You go from playing, as you say, go playing from, you know, when you said there is, you couldn't even see the end of the stage to kids who have a very, and very little kids who have a very short attention span. Are they just fascinated with you? So they just sit there and stare as you play and just enjoy it? I mean, what's what's how do you connect with them? Because I always do that with kids. I always connect with kids. I just make I make them smile. You know, of course, you have to watch yourself when you're at the mall and you're joking around with the kid because parents think, who's this weirdo? With the, you know, but for me. But how do you connect with the kids? And, and do you feel like a fun energy from them? Well, I, I'm, I'm kind of a big kid. I mean, I, I feel like... The goal of my life as an adult is to hold on to what it's like to be curious and intuitive and um, silly and, uh, you know, not to fully grow up. So I kind of relate to them just because I relate to them just as little people who are awesome, awesome little people. Little, they're, To me, they're like little Buddhas. They're like little enlightened humans, you know. They are free with themselves. They are... Uh, honest, you know, if they don't like what you're doing, they won't join in, and if they do, they'll be there wholeheartedly. When I get a hug from a little kid after a show, it's the most genuine hug I've ever gotten, you know, it just feels like they really are, you know, 
loving what I'm trying to do. So it's cool. So as far as the crowd responses, there's a huge range. So I have so many songs, and I never make a set list. So I just get up in front of the audience, and I get a vibe of what they want to do. Sometimes they want to dance, so here we go. We're going to play a bunch of dancey songs. Uh, and sometimes after about five dancey songs, I can see them kind of like, you know, huffing and puffing. All right, let's take it down. And so, uh, and sometimes it's an afternoon show at a library or something, and they just want to hear story songs and kind of be, you know, told little stories. So I'll do that. Sometimes they want to do call and response and sing a lot. Sometimes the energy's kind of dissipated and there's no singing going on, so I don't do them. So, yeah, I, I can customize. One of the things I love about the Casper thing is I can be totally in the moment. Uh, at the shows and present and not trying to execute a plan and kind of win them over. I'm trying to like uh, collaborate with them and see what they want to do so that we can make something happen together. So now, it's, it's cool. Now of all those shows with the kids, have you ever had like a hell gig? One that just got out of control with the kids? Uh, you mean like got out of control in a, yeah, I've like, had a couple uh versions of gotten out of control one time i played when my popularity was really starting to soar in seattle at a uh, festival in west seattle called Summerfest, and I, they just set me up on a street corner with a pa uh no stage and i was absolutely mobbed like and i was sitting on a stool too so i was low so the whole crowd was just like crushing into me and at one point, you know, the kids, I, I have my music, or I have my uh, songs on a uh, music stand because I don't memorize them because there's so many. And the kids are like tearing the music stand apart and uh, <laughs> moving my microphone around. And all of a sudden the sound goes like squealy crazy. And I turn around and the guy, the, the hippie dude that was supposed to be running sound for me had disappeared. And there was a kid. This is summertime, so it's hot out. And there's a little kid who's barely walking in a big, overstuffed diaper with curly blonde hair and nothing else, just moving all the knobs and faders on the soundboard. <laughs> I was like, that's about the nuttiest situation I've ever been in. So, and you know, it was ultimately it was kind of dangerous and weird. So, uh, I've definitely graduated now. I'm doing more theaters and kind of, you know, uh, uh, seated places like that, so uh, it's a, a little less nuts. I, I still get nutty shows, but after 1,200 shows, I'm kind of ready to sit on a stage and, and have good sound and play. <laughs> <laughs> now, besides your uh, your Casper site, you have your own site, which is uh, your .org, your chrisblue.org. Yeah. Um, the pictures, I'm looking at your art gallery right now. Um, oh, yeah. How, did, how do you, I know you said you was based on your wife's drawings or paintings or her artwork but they're very they're cool looking they're very different and they're, they're you know they have that almost to me some of them have like almost like that keith herring feel oh yeah how did you what what made you decide to finally just get back to art is it just relaxing for you and how do people are people enjoying them because they're very cool looking oh thanks i appreciate that also i gotta qualify these are the early these are from like four years ago and I have since, uh, my style has gotten denser and more intense. And uh, so I look at these and I'm kind of like, oh, these are old. Don't look at these. But anyway, um, which I guess is how every artist should feel as they progress. Um, so these things are, so when I was in art school, I did these shapes over and over. I did these kind of like flowy 
shapes that I didn't understand. They're kind of like ribbony lines. And, you know, I just didn't know what they were for, and I couldn't figure out what context to put them in, and so I just kind of forgot about it. And then about six years ago, or five years ago, uh, Katie and I were in Michigan, and we were in a bookstore, and she handed me a calendar of Kate Dorset Inuit printmaking. Specifically, there's an artist, Kenozhuak Ashivak, and I looked at her work, and it just set off a bizarre sensation. I was like, that's it. That's what I was trying to draw. She kind of, she's a printmaker from Baffin Island, Cape Dorset, but she's very abstract and kind of draws these energy lines coming off of animals and stuff. And it just really struck a chord with me and I suddenly kind of started applying. So I do Qigong. I do like a meditation kind of Tai Chi thing every day. And one of the exercises you work on I work on as I do that is kind of ego management you know you have these voices in your head telling you things and you know not like I'm insane those not those kind of voices but like you know you you start telling your narrative of yourself in your head with these extra voices and one of the challenges is kind of taming those voices or um, understanding that they're not really you that you can uh, have, you can dialogue with them and change your story and change your perception of yourself. And so these kind of started out of that in that they kind of became these two dimensional representations of states of meditation and uh, sort of ego work, I guess you'd call it. Like uh, I always think of the phrase, let go my ego. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So anyway, this is obviously the art, the visual art is kind of in its infancy, and I see a long road ahead of that. In fact, I kind of feel like it might be my third act is doing uh, more visual art. So, um, yeah, that's kind of that in a nutshell. And, yeah, it's very different from the kids' music thing. It's more complex. It's more weird and spooky and kind of, uh, I don't know, open-ended. But uh, it's very relaxing, and I really love doing it. And I've got, a, I've got three shows coming up in the next year that I'm getting ready for. Now, when you do a show, do they say, you know, who you are, or do they just say an artist? I mean, I'm sure the the gallery or wherever you're at want people to come, So, and you have a name. How do they promote that? You know, I'm not sure. I've only, I've only done two shows, and neither were in a gallery. I'm kind of following Kate's lead, and I'm not going the gallery route. Galleries are kind of hard to deal with. Uh, there, it takes a long time to get into that world, and they take 50% of what you sell. So I'm doing, I'm following Kate's thing, and you know, there's a lot of uh, great kind of cafes, restaurants, um, uh, bars, places like that. I'm going to show them there. They're going to be prints. They're going to be affordable. You know, somewhere in the fifty to seventy dollar range, uh, so people can take them home after they've had five drinks and they <laughs> want one. <laughs> Uh, I like putting art in those spaces too because that's where people eat and commune and hang out and it's less about sort of separating the visuals, separating the art from daily life. I want to insert it into daily life. So as far as promotion, you know, it's sort of built in. People are streaming in and out of restaurants and cafes and bars all the time. So, you know, there they are. Well, that's awesome. You know, I, I, and your website, people go to chrisbaloo.org and it has your art. Yeah, and, 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 and I should mention too that there's tons of free music on that website from Egg that you mentioned before and other collaborations like the Giraffes, Chris and Tad. Uh, I make this kind of funky, weird, cut-up-y dance music I call Sampladelic. Um, there's 
all kinds of stuff on there for free uh, that I was gathering dust, and I just decided to release for anyone who wants it. So what is make what use of that? What is Creepy Stick? Creepy Stick is me and my friend Dave Feely. I've known him since he was born, and I was four years old. My very, very, very first band experience was what's called David and the Overtones, and it was me on a piano and Dave on uh, drums. And so we've been making music together our whole lives, uh, and never released anything. Dave. It's an interesting musical relationship. I've always jammed and kind of had these, uh, maybe we have like, you know, uh, a bunch of riffs that we'll, we'll depend on and then we'll make up new stuff. And But we never tried to be a band. We never tried to do anything real or record what we did. Um, we just allowed it to be this like freeform kind of uh, dirgy, heavy uh, rock kind of trancy rock thing that we do so that's what that is and we we managed to make a record and then our old we used to have a sax player that we collaborated with and he's back on the scene and he's helping us put some of our old uh little handheld tape recorder stuff and four track stuff out um after he's kind of messed with it so there's some new creepy stick stuff which is crazy that's awesome well th- yeah. th- thank you for taking the time people go to his website it's chrisballew.org it's b-a-l-l-e-w and the other website if, especially if you have kids and the videos are just fun you know if you're hanging out and you want to just chill out and watch something fun you know his videos are up there go to babypantsmusic.com and also people right. go to my website people it's coopertalk.net i have over 720 episodes up there you can email me at cooper at coopertalk.net and you can follow me on Twitter. That's at Cooper Talk. So remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, and I'll talk to you guys next week.